Gary Paulson's Newbery Honor-winning novel, Hatchet, was published in 1987. Roughly a decade after that, it became one of the first books featuring a boy main character that I really connected with. But I guess that distinction isn't as impressive as the Newbery Honor. What is impressive, though, is the story at the heart of Hatchet. In it, we meet 13-year-old Brian, who is boarding a small plane to visit his father. Brian's parents are recently divorced, but his father, who has gone to work in northern Canada's oil fields, doesn't know that Brian is keeping a major secret. He caught his mother having an affair. Brian is thinking a lot about this capital S secret on the flight, until the pilot has a heart attack and he has to figure out how to crash land the plane himself. Somehow, he manages to do it. And then he manages to survive on his own in the Canadian wilderness for more than 50 days. To do it, he relies on a very basic knowledge of the outdoors, a healthy sense of perspective, and a hatchet given to him by his mom just before he left. Keep in mind also that we're talking about a book written in the mid-80s, when it wasn't exactly simple to track down a plane that had gone so far off its original course. The good news is that Brian is rescued in the end, but in the meantime he encounters everything from hunger and mosquitoes to a tornado and depression. On episode 61 of SSR, we break down all of these challenges and consider which one might be the most devastating. We come back to the classic SSR discussion of the boy-girl book dichotomy and how that influenced the books we read as kids. We try to figure out what makes certain children's classics stand the test of time while others do not. We chat about the way Hatchet presents trauma and personal development and wonder why we didn't clock the graphic scene of Brian's suicide attempt when we were kids. And we spend a lot of time praising Gary Paulson's beautiful writing and talking about his fascinating background. Within a few minutes of our chat, you'll find that my guest Sarah and I actually seem convinced that we're on a first-name basis with Gary. Born in Los Angeles, Sarah Faring is an Argentine-American fascinated by literary puzzles. The Tenth Girl, released by Macmillan's imprint on September 24, 2019, is her first novel. To learn more about her work, visit www.sarahfaring.com and follow at Sarah Faring on Instagram and Twitter. Sarah and I met earlier this summer at BookCon, and we share a similar sense of humor. Forgive the giggles you're about to hear. If you haven't yet, please don't forget to follow SSR on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. My heart grows a little bigger every time I see you tagging me in your Insta stories about the podcast, so please do keep that up. It's a great way to spread the word about the show. Leaving your five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes also goes a long way. If you want to take your support to the next level, you may also want to check out Patreon, a platform that allows you to contribute a few dollars to SSR's production on a monthly basis in exchange for exclusive rewards like newsletters, tote bags, free shipping on merch, bonus episodes, book club chats, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support to learn more. A big thank you goes out to all of the Patreon supporters tuning into this episode. Another big thank you goes out to all of the listeners who have already tried and probably fallen in love with Libro FM. If you haven't tried it, what are you waiting for? I've got a deal for you and everything. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted. When I shop for audiobooks on Libro.fm, I support my local Brooklyn indie books are magic, but you can choose any story you want. Time to journey into the Canadian wilderness, listeners, but at least we're not alone like Brian. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. 
Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to SSR. Thank you so much for having me, Ali. I'm so excited to talk about Okay, I probably shouldn't be introing the book we're doing. Am I supposed to do this? I'm you, already messing you, up. No, you can. You're not messing up. I know how excited you are. Even before we started recording, you were like, I love this book. I'm obsessed with it. I can't wait to talk about it. So I will let you do the honors. Why don't you intro the book we're talking about? Today, friends, we're going to be talking about <laughs> Hatchet by Gary Paulson which I remember being so intensely obsessed with when I was a kid because I had these fantasies that I was going to be in a plane with a pilot who had a heart attack, who crashed somewhere, even though that was not remotely realistic for my lifestyle in any way. Um, I needed this knowledge. And I feel like there were so many secrets in it. And that has since become, as an adult, an obsession with shows like Alone on Hulu, which I watched a whole season of last winter. Anyway. Were you an outdoorsy kid? Like, did you spend a lot of time in the wilderness? Like, what did that relate to your personal experience at all? I was the most indoor cat of a kid you've ever seen in your life. I was like, sun had never touched my skin. Okay. I was like routinely referred to as a vampire. I was only friends with books. And I was so not outdoorsy, like terrified of bugs, everything. I probably shouldn't talk about things I'm terrified of in such a public forum, but it's fine. Um, You can break me with a bug. Like living in New York with a... I can't even say the word water bug, but there's a worse word. I'm not going to traumatize you with it. I don't want to say it, but I do know what you're talking about. I too was an inside cat as a kid. I've become more of an outdoor cat as I've gotten older. I think living in New York has kind of had the opposite effect on me where I'm like, I need to be outside now. A hundred percent. Yeah. Let me out. But I too loved this book, which is kind of weird given the other books that I enjoyed reading as a kid. I mean, I read pretty much everything. And I think by the time I got to this book, it was because I'd read a lot of other books that sort of felt like they came more naturally. And so then I was like, okay, I guess I'll read this like book about the boy who stranded (laughs) on an island or in the woods or something. Like somebody gave this to me and I was like, I guess this is the only thing left in the library to read. And it was very like out of my normal genre. And I remember sort of being reluctant to read it. As listeners know, I sort of had a predisposition to reading books about girls. And so any book that was about a boy felt a little bit like intimidating to me and I just wasn't as interested. But I fell in love with this book and I don't think I read a lot of other books like it. Like it's not as if I read this book and I was like, I need to start reading more wilderness adventures. It was like I read this book and it stood on its own. Exactly. No, I completely agree. Wait, so you found it in the library. You weren't assigned it in any I'm wondering if I was assigned it. See, I don't remember reading it for the first time. I need to look up even when it came out because that might be totally unrealistic. It came out Um, in 1987. You know, it's interesting, though, that you say that you were drawn to books with girls as the protagonist, because I think that for a really long time, I was able to just pretend that I was the protagonist, even if it was a boy. I don't know why. Oh, that's interesting. I like that perspective because we do talk a lot about that sort of like boy-girl book dichotomy on the show. I don't think that anyone has ever said that before. So you feel like it was sort of irrelevant exactly who the protagonist was because you were always like ready and willing to 
become that person in your head. Yeah, exactly. And I almost feel like the personality traits or the voice of the character is more important to me. In this book, in Hatchet, did you feel like there was anything a girl couldn't have done? I mean, I'm trying to think through like the actual physical strength of a 13-year-old boy and what he did in this book. And like, fine, there's plenty that might have been completely unrealistic. And I probably would have died when the mosquitoes swarmed him. Um, Oh, that was really bad. That was really bad. And it was within like the first chapter of him being stranded. And I, I don't know. I don't think I realized like how horrible that was when I was a kid, but reading it as an adult and like having been in those moments where like you can't keep the bugs off you, I was like, I could, I felt like I could feel them all over me. I felt like he was pretty chill. I'm not going to lie to you, Brian. Yeah, he was. Like he definitely had his low points, but I was like, you handle this like a champ, like on a loan on Hulu, which I'm not going to constantly reference because I'm not like sponsored by them or anything. But they could reach out if they needed somebody to like sponsor for sure. I'm here. Okay. These are grown ass men. By the way, what's the cursing policy? Go forth. Okay. These are grown ass men who obviously have like, you know, 70 pounds of cameras strapped to them that they have to have recording them at all times, which probably affects their experience. But every season, or at least when I watch, like multiple guys will just break down because they're so alone in this Canadian wilderness, which is like, hello, hatchet, Canadian wilderness. So I was like, but I guess it's because they know they can leave at any minute. And Brian couldn't. Yeah, it was just sort of his reality that he had to accept. I was trying to think as a kid about like what I would have been so obsessed with, like what I would have latched onto, how I would have gotten into it, because the wilderness story itself would like not have been the thing to suck me in. And I think that what it was was like the very brief glimpses we get into Brian's personal life with his parents because he's flying to visit his dad. Yeah, he has this secret. His parents have recently divorced. I think I read this book when I was probably in like fourth or fifth grade and my parents had been divorced for many years at that point. But I always like sort of owned the fact that I was this divorced kid, even though it wasn't anything that I really could remember from like recent past. I just like owned that as part of my identity. And so any book about a divorced kid always appealed to me. And I think that I connected to him on that level. And like he's sitting on the plane. He's like leaving his mom to go visit his dad, which is an experience that I was very familiar with, like kind of ferrying between parents and trying to sort of like reconcile how you feel about each parent in any given moment and like trying not to play favorites, but also sort of having these like innate feelings about maybe who's a little bit more right than the other person. I think I got into that for sure. And also, like you said, he has this secret. So he he saw his mom cheating on his dad, I think at the mall with his friend. And like his dad doesn't know that that's why they actually divorced. And so Brian is sort of like debating whether or not he should tell his dad the truth. And that's what he's thinking about as he's on the plane. And I think that's probably one of the things that sucked me in, even though like the idea of a boy sitting on a plane and like maybe having to fly it probably on its own would not have been my thing as a fourth grader. Because it's so like action adventure and no, you're right. And also like, I loved that part where Gary Paulson crash cut from the blackout on the plane after the plane crashes to giving you more about the secret immediately in the next chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm cheating on the dad. It was so good. Oh my gosh. I don't know. Why did I love this book so much after this read? I don't know what it is. It was like you have the thrills and terror adventure and pain mixed with 
beauty and wonder and these secrets that you feel like he's cluing you in on about the natural world, you know? Mm -hmm. Do you think the writing too? I found this really interesting quote in an article that I don't love the title of this article. I don't think it does the essay justice. The title of the essay is 30 Years Later, Hatchet Remains the Best Nature Book for Boys, which, not my favorite title, but the essay itself was really great and I will include a link to it in the show notes. But this writer says, in Hatchet, Paulson relies on a strange sort of repetitious sentence structure as if this is the story Brian is telling himself to survive. It's a little claustrophobic, a little desperate as if each sentence burrows just a bit deeper into the story. And writer that you are, do you agree? Like, do you think that part of your renewed love for the book on this read had to do with Paulson's writing? Yeah, you know what? You're absolutely right because I'm looking through what I marked as I was reading and there are just phrases I really loved and probably didn't appreciate as a kid when I was just speeding through to figure out what happened to Brian. But, you know, bits that are like the hot hate slices of the memory were exact or like um, there was great noise here, but a noise he did not know. And the colors were new to him and the colors and noise mixed in his mind to make a green blue blur he could hear here as a hissing pulse sound. And he was still tired. So tired. That does not feel like something that I would have appreciated at all as a kid. But now I just loved the rhythm of it. I was really into it. Gary. Yes. Gary. Did you know he's written like 200 other books? No. Yeah. He's he's pretty prolific guy. So I think that this series is like his most loved, his best known stuff. For those who don't know, Hatchet is actually the first of a five book cycle and he never intended to write other books in the series, but he got so many letters from readers after Hatchet was released and he was like, okay, I guess I have to give them more Brian. This book though won the Newbery Honor in 1988, which huge honor from the ALA, obviously. And Gary Paulson is kind of an interesting guy. You asked me before we jumped on to record if we needed to be concerned about any sort of like problematic Gary Paulson stuff and I'm happy to report that I did not find anything. He's just like a really cool guy who based a lot of this story on his own experience. He talks about how like his parents had sort of a rough marriage and while he didn't have to crash land a plane in order to find himself in the wilderness, he often would sort of like quote unquote foster himself in the woods in order to escape what was going on at home. And so he like taught himself a lot of the skills that Brian has to learn. Um, He also was involved in a few like forced landings on planes as a younger adult. And so he decided that like, if I survive this, I'm going to write about it. And he combined all of these different experiences from his own life to write the book and he still like makes his own clothes and he prefers to be alone like he talks about how he doesn't have any problem with individuals but he thinks that like humans as a species are kind of in a mess which you know I I, feel like you're not wrong Gary I hear you dude so he's like this really interesting guy who I think like was very attached to the content of this book and I think that really shows in the writing I agree and you know what I also loved I don't know if you had this in your edition but at the very back of my copy, there's a note from him that explains like how he did research for Hatchet, hmm. like eating a raw turtle egg, which he describes that he's like, I was sitting on my porch and I saw a snapping turtle come out of the water and lay her clutch of eggs. So I knew they were fresh. And I was like, thank goodness he answered that question because I was really worried he was eating old snapping turtle eggs. And he, he like <laughs> pairs them to tired Vaseline, which I love. Ugh. And how he started to try to make a fire with a hatchet so that he could be sure Brian could do it. And he did it for hours, and his wife thought he was slightly off his rocker. I don't know if that's pros. And I liked that. And then I read somewhere else that 
I don't know where it said this. Okay, I'm not going to lie. It was on Wikipedia. It said, much of what is known about Paulson's life is from prologues or epilogues of his own books. And I was thinking about how much I kind of loved that, especially in this age of everyone kind of spilling everything on social media. And I mean, as a kid, I would have, but I also as a kid, maybe I wasn't a kid when these books came out, but you know, the Lemony Snicket books. Loved. Loved this idea of this mysterious man behind them. And I feel like to some degree, I don't know how aware I was of like who Gary Paulson was as a person, but it would have resonated with me that he was this person like slightly reclusive who really believed what he was writing about and was kind of off the grid a little bit. I don't know. That would have, I would have liked that. I think it adds to his allure. I remember seeing a picture of him once when I was a kid. I don't know if there's one I'm looking now in the edition that I have now and, and there's no headshot in this one, but I remember seeing a picture of him and he had like a beard and a hat and he was sort of exactly what I dreamed he would be. Right, and I do right. think it adds to sort of his persona as a writer of these like really intense wilderness stories that he like lives it. Like he's not this like, you know, clean cut guy living in New York City writing these books. He exactly. actually knows what he's talking about. Um, luckily, he didn't have to crash land a plane, but he knows what no. it's like to be outside. Did you see how he when he, when he was on a boat, a ship with his mother? going to the Philippines to where his father was stationed, he witnessed a plane crash and he saw the sharks eat all of the survivors in the water. I did they were- not see this. I know. Apparently he wrote about it in his fragmented autobiography. That was in air quotes because I don't know what fragmented really. Into. I guess he wasn't, you know, really. It wasn't complete. Anyway. Are we obsessed um, with Gary Paulson? Do we have like an author crush on Gary Paulson? And I've only read this book and I've only probably read it twice in my life. But I was curious. I actually wanted to read Brian's Winter because that was one of the books that you mentioned. Like readers would say, I'm a little upset that you plucked Brian out of the wilderness before the winter, which was the hard part. Even though, let's be real, Brian went through way too much in this book. Oh, that leads me to something else. But yeah, I want to read Brian's Winter. Can we talk about something? I don't even know if this is appropriate, but I am curious. Okay, so it says this book is for ages 10 to 14. On page 116 of my copy, that's the bit where Brian sort of gives up and he basically attempts suicide. Yes, I actually would love to read that section because it came as a surprise to me and I pulled it out as something we should talk about. So it says, you know, he's gone, he's sort of at a very low point in his survival. A lot of the things that he's successfully done so far are falling apart and he had kind of had hope and now it's all gone. Um, And the book says he's where he wanted to die. He had settled into the gray funk deeper and still deeper until finally in the dark he had gone up on the ridge and taken the hatchet and tried to end it by cutting himself. Madness, a hissing madness that took his brain. There had been nothing for him then and he tried to become nothing but the cutting had been hard to do, impossible to do and he had at last fallen to his side wishing for death, wishing for an end and slept only didn't sleep. I think we just need to take a minute. I did not remember that at all. I don't know if I didn't understand it when I was a kid but I... While I was reading it this time, I read that section. I put the book down. I was sitting next to my husband, who would also read this book as a kid. And I was like, did you know that Brian tried to commit suicide in Hatchet? And he said he didn't remember either. Yeah, same. And it's funny because I I made so many notes throughout the book, but this was the one page I folded, and I hate folding pages and books. But I just wondered, are books for that age range? I mean, definitely the upper end of that range. But how are they addressing suicide for, let's say, a 10-year-old reader these days. I don't actually know. 
affect you? Have you read anything that's for attempted suicide, let's say? I think it's addressed in YA probably more now than it was in the late 80s and the 90s, which makes this a pretty early... Upper, no? Like 13 plus, maybe? I think in a lot of ways this book does read to me a little bit more like middle grade. I mean, Brian's 13, so he himself is sort of above the middle grade age range, but a lot of the other stuff in this book feels like a middle grade reader could enjoy it, could relate to it, could sort of like read it at a technical level. Exactly. And I read it, like I said, in fourth or fifth grade. It was sort of up for grabs in my elementary school library. So it's not as if this book has ever been positioned as a book like strictly for teens. And I think you're right that today kids in their older teens are sort of coming across references to suicide or suicide attempts more frequently than maybe they were. And I also think that Part of this is out of necessity because it's a conversation that we are having to have more like in the world and kids are sort of being forced to understand what that means a little bit younger. I mean, I don't remember having the vocabulary around suicide that my younger sisters did when they were in their late teens when I was that age. Like, I don't really remember understanding that. So to me, like reading this now, I'm like, oh, this this guy in the in the late 80s put what I feel like is a pretty graphic reference to a suicide attempt in this book that was targeted at like middle graders to early teenagers. And just the fact that like, not only is he mentioning that he wanted to die, but also he kind of goes into like the, the actual process of like the fact that he used his hatchet. It was really hard to use the hatchet. He couldn't do it. It's really hard to read. I agree. And also waking up with the dried blood and his feelings about the previous night. It was, I can't say I disliked the inclusion. I was just curious how it would be read now. And I'm, I'm surprised that both of us forgot about it. You know, I'd be curious, listeners who read this book, loved this book, remember this book. Do you remember that there was this scene? Like, please let me know, because I'm curious if this is something that I blocked out maybe because I was too young and just like didn't really understand what the author was trying to say or if I was so caught up in the action of it. Sarah, you mentioned that you as a kid had just kind of like read through it, read through it to see what happened to Brian. And there were these like other emotional things going on that maybe you didn't pick up on. Maybe I was in the same boat there. But listeners, I'd love to know if this news shocks you too, because it really did surprise me reading it this time. But it feels realistic. And then, you know what, in that vein, before we jump to something else, I was interested in the, what I felt like was the realism of the ending, really the epilogue where, I mean, I can read from it. He says, after the initial surprise and happiness from his parents, his being alive for a week, it looked as if they might actually get back together. Things rapidly went back to normal. His father returned to the northern oil fields where Brian eventually visited him, and his mother stayed in the city, worked in her career in real estate, and continued to see the man in the station wagon. There's another little bit. But it's funny because I feel like recently the books I've read, they end on a different beat. Hmm. They don't end on a beat where it's like, and then everything went back to normal. It would have ended on the beat of, and Brian was changed forever. You know, which is a beat that exists at the end of this book. I liked it. I also kind of feel like, not to jump again, but do you feel like Gary Paulson just has this huge shelf of Hemingway books? He might. He seems like a Hemingway guy for sure. He does. But I don't know. I guess I would need to read more more middle grade because I do feel like it reads like middle grade, honestly. Did you think that his parents might get back together? Because I had a moment when the plane is actually going down and then shortly after Brian crash lands and is like trying to think about 
whether or not the people at home are worried about him or looking for him. I, even as an adult, couldn't help but think like, Brian is probably thinking that maybe this will bring his parents together. And logically, like knowing the kind of author that Gary Paulson is, I guess I didn't necessarily think that there would be this like dramatic or like romantic reunion at the end of the book. But I guess I could see from Brian's perspective why he might feel that way. Right. No, it's funny because I just didn't anticipate it being addressed at all. Mm. In other words... I thought we'd be lucky if we got like, and his parents were so delighted to have him back. I thought it was going to end on the note of him just um, being rescued, basically. And that would be the beat. In terms of the rescue, I had another thought about how kids kids today would read Hatchet. Because obviously the technology is so different and... Clearly, there's a world in which even in 2019, even with great technology, even with GPS, even with phones, like you could go down in a plane and you could have to crash land it. And it's possible that it would be really hard for people to know where you are. And it's possible that you would sort of have to fend for yourself for a certain amount of days. Brian is alone for 54 days, which I don't know that that would happen, at least not in North America today. Right. And I think sort of at least within the realm of understanding of American readers in particular, right. I don't think that kids would necessarily buy into that premise just because they'd be like, where's your GPS? Right. You think they'd be frustrated and set it down unless they could think about it as a sort of piece of historical fiction. I mean, I hope so. This is a conversation that we've been having more and more frequently. This is just like a line of conversation that we've been going down more than we used to on the podcast. And maybe I'm just like overthinking it because I want 2019 kids to love these books as much as I do, but I can't help but like try to sit in their seats today and like think about what actually would make sense based on their experience. And I just, I hope that kids that have grown up with different kinds of technology, like can still appreciate that. First of all, this, this would have happened years ago. Like if a plane had been thrown off course, 160 miles off of where it was supposed to be, if a teenager had had to crash land it, if the radio had broken, like if all of these things had happened, it actually would have been next to impossible for somebody to find him in a short period of time. So I think it's important that they realize that that's real, but also like you said, to be able to set it aside and be like, let's not think about that. Let's not get frustrated. And this is just a really cool, badass story about a guy fending for himself in the wilderness. I don't know. It's just something that I think about now. No, it's interesting. And then, okay, here's another spin on this. In this day and age, we have very, very protective parents in a way that maybe, I mean, at least Gary Paulson's mother clearly had a very different attitude towards him because I also read that his mother beat to death a, quote, vagrant who tried to, like, steal Gary and molest him. She beat him to death. I know, maybe this is fake news, I'm just, but seriously, apparently this is all in his autobiography. Okay. The fragmented autobiography. Fragmented one, exactly. We're getting really vivid fragments, Gary. Okay. But anyway, what I was going to say is maybe it would be really compelling for a kid who's been really just protected and insulated his whole life to see this resourcefulness and this independence of this 13-year-old boy who is left to fend for himself and is completely alone, maybe that would be so enthralling Mm. that they'd be able to look past it. Because what I mean to say is what makes it unrealistic also makes it a compelling read. Because how are you going to be able to put yourself in the shoes of someone who is 13 and left completely on their own? I 
I was able to reclaim while I was reading this, this feeling that I was being fed these secrets about nature, you know, that I never would have otherwise had access to. Something that I also noticed more on this reread, you were talking a little bit about just kind of the appreciation for nature that you got from this book and the writing about nature. Obviously, we've talked about how amazing that is. Thanks, Gary. I realized much more this time around that Brian is a city boy. Like he's not, it's not like he's this, you know, experienced boy scout who's had all of this time out in the wilderness doing these kinds of things before. I think he might live in New York City, actually. He talks about like a big park that makes him feel like he's somewhat outside of the city. And I had to wonder if that was Central Park. He references Hampton, New York um, quite a bit. But just a lot of the things that he was mentioning made me think that either he lives in New York City or he spends quite a bit of time in New York City. So he's like completely out of his element in this scenario. And I I thought it was interesting that he knew a lot about planes. Like he didn't know very much about how to really survive in the wilderness, but it seemed like he'd done a lot of research about planes. And that sort of, I think, points to his innocence. Like he's only 13 years old and he's curious about planes and how to be a pilot. So maybe he's done a lot of reading about them or like watched a lot of shows about about planes, but I thought it was interesting that like not only did Gary Paulson put this kid who is totally unqualified to be living alone in the woods, alone in the woods, but he also added this extra spin by being like, yeah, and this isn't a guy that really knows how to exist outside. Right. No, that's, you're right, because there's a bit where it talks about, you know, the traffic and the wind of the city and yeah, something I really loved was this idea of Brian's senses changing Mm. and the new Brian, you know, rising. I loved that. I thought it was so powerful. And it also felt very much like, you know, there are a lot of middle grade books that feel like really strong reads for middle graders and adults. But then there's this pocket of in between where it may not be as compelling a read. Mm -hmm. I thought that this falls into that category because I don't know. I think like as a, I don't know, as a 15 year old, 16 year old, I don't think I would have really been into it. I don't know. When I was in fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, I loved reading about teenagers and 13 seemed like such a cool age to me, especially when I was in elementary school. And then I think you're right. By the time I got to high school, I sort of just wanted to read about adults. Right. And maybe that's just because I always was like looking for the next sort of hardest read. And I do think that YA as a category, you know, has evolved so much. And now there's so many more books for teens to read that are of interest to them about kids that are still older than they are or in college. Um, But I don't know that like 14, 15, 16 year olds would be as engaged with this book because Brian seems young to them. Like a 14 or 15 year old doesn't really want to read about a 13 year old. Yeah, no, exactly right. Oh, and then, oh my gosh, sorry. I keep hopping around because things just like float to the top of my consciousness. Go for it. You're making my job very easy and I'm, I'm loving it. You can come on the show anytime. (laughs) I was like, she's going to have to edit all of these pieces together, like a Frankenstein, you know? Um, okay. I love the vocabulary that City Brian, you know, the city kid creates for all of these wondrous, you know, parts of the Canadian wilderness he's never witnessed and would have no reason to know anything about, you know, like the fool birds and the gut cherries. Yeah. Oh, I just, it felt like he was discovering a brand new world. And so much of it is about his senses. I agree. Like he's, he's making these new words and like creating this new language based just on like how things make him feel and what he sees and smells and tastes. 
And I pulled out an excerpt right. from toward the end of the book where he says, I am not the same. He thought, I see, I hear differently. He did not know when the change started, but it was there. When a sound came to him now, he didn't just hear it, but would know the sound. He would swing and look at it, a breaking twig, a movement of air, and know the sound as if he somehow could move his mind back down the wave of sound to the source, which is so beautiful and speaks to, to well, both this vocabulary that he's creating, but also, as you mentioned, just sort of the evolution that he's going through. And I guess the only thing that I would have liked to see a little bit more in terms of like Brian's development is I feel like, and, and maybe this is just because I wanted more of like the personal drama and I wanted more flashbacks and I wanted to know more about what actually happened with his parents. But I kind of wanted to like learn a little bit more maybe about how he evolved personally. And I guess we get that a little bit. Like he's becoming stronger. He's a little bit more patient. He's a little bit more observant. He has all these new skills. But I did feel like maybe there was like a teeny bit of personal development or like personal evolution that I would have liked to see in the book. You know, it's funny you say that because I was thinking about how wildly different the book would have been if it had been written in first person present as opposed to third person past. Mm -hmm. And I, an author today, not that Gary isn't an author today, but I'm saying like, you know, contemporary author would have written it in first person present, knowing that it's like this survival story, this wilderness story, and it would have had a very different energy and feel because you mentioned that an article called this book a little bit claustrophobic, right? Which I think is fair, but it doesn't feel super interior. It's almost like, to me, it was almost calming that we were just going along at this steady pace, watching his, what seemed to be pretty slow development and him learning like the value of patience and him getting stronger and him dealing with these horrible happenings. I almost kind of liked that it was written in third person past, but I think you're right that for a reader who is eager for those, you know, kind of like his personal development, it would be such a strong book in first person present. As I was like just going through this morning and highlighting things I wanted to talk about, I was noticing more sort of sharply that it's written in third person. And I do think it would be an interesting book in first person. I also just think it's always interesting to see how different authors execute this kind of premise of like, person alone in the wilderness, no other characters to talk to. You can only talk to yourself inside your head. Like, here are descriptions. Here's more descriptions. Here's the action. And I, I think Gary Paulson does it really effectively and very well. We've also read Julie of the Wolves and Island of the Blue Dolphins for the show. And it's kind of the same idea where you have this main character who's essentially alone and maybe there's some animal friends around. Maybe you're getting a few flashbacks to humans that they were acquainted with before they found themselves alone on the island or in the wilderness. So I always am interested in how well that's pulled off. I think Gary did a great job. Gary, you're awesome if you happen to be listening. I don't think you're a podcast guy. I guess in the absence of some of those like conversations that we see in most books or in the absence of like that sort of real-time relationship building that you get, I always right. am sort of hungry for like what's happening inside your head? Like, what are you thinking about? What are you remembering? And I feel like we got more of that at the beginning of the book. Like when he first landed, he's thinking more about home and talking about his parents' divorce and remembering the secret. And that kind of goes away, I guess out of necessity because he has to focus 100% of his time on like surviving. And then instead, what we get is essentially this sped up bit in the epilogue where it says, you know, many of the changes would prove to be permanent. Like Brian had gained immensely in his ability to observe what was happening and react to it. That would last him all his life. 
He'd become more thoughtful as well. And from that time on, he would think slowly about something before speaking. How do we feel about that? Is that is that annoying as a reader that it's almost like Gary saying to you, these are things that would be valuable for anyone to learn. Hi reader. Like this is me pointing this out. Would it be better if it was kind of shown in a different way? Or do we like that Gary was just like, listen, I'm putting it out there. Like this is the epilogue. We're cutting through all of that. This is what happened to Brian. This is what you can take away from it. I think that Gary's like not the kind of author maybe that would show that kind of evolution more gradually. I think we get pieces of it just in the way that Brian is like approaching different challenges. Like at first he kind of tackles any hiccup that he experiences in the wilderness so quickly and gets frustrated when it doesn't get fixed right away. And he doesn't really know how to pace himself. He doesn't know how to sort of like try different things when one plan fails. And so I think over the course of the book, we see him start to be a little bit more patient with those kinds of things and just to like approach different tasks differently. So I think that maybe that's the extent of sort of how Gary wanted to introduce those changes gradually. And then it's like, okay, people are going to want to know if this stuff sticks. And so he threw that into the epilogue. I guess it depends on the kind of reader you are. I don't know if there was a better way to demonstrate that shift throughout this particular book, just because again, he doesn't have other people around him. Like he's not in conversation with others, but I think in the context of this book, I guess it didn't really bother me that it was in the epilogue. What do you think? You know, I'm torn because really what I was left thinking about is that was Gary trying to say something about how maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I'm definitely just reading into it too much. Um, was he trying to say something on a bigger scale about how Brian changed? And he went from being the city boy who was always in his head, who was stressing about the secret and his parents and this and that. And then slowly his field of vision changed and his focus changed and it became more about his environment and his world. And he's just a piece of that. Hmm. Like he's just a piece in the puzzle. He's not the center. And I kind of felt like that was reflected in the structure of the book because those first chapters are really in his head. And then we kind of pull out and I almost liked that. And I'm wondering like, as a reader, would you have would it have been easier or harder for you to put yourself in Brian's shoes if throughout we were really deep into the like for example his interaction with his friend whose name I forget. Terry. Right, Terry. There we go. Terry. Sorry to forget you, Terry. And, you know, kind of the dynamic with his parents. I think for me that would have taken me out of it and I wouldn't have felt able to put myself in the shoes of this boy because I would have felt like, oh, well, I don't really have a bud like Terry that I go into the woods and do this stuff with. Oh, well, I don't have parents with this exact dynamic. Oh, well, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And obviously, like for someone whose parents were divorced at the time that they read this, maybe that would be different. Maybe they would like it or maybe it would just be like, well, no, that's not what my experience as a child of divorced parents has been like. I don't know. So for me, it was like, Anyway, sorry. (laughs) No, I actually, I'm nodding because I agree with you. I hadn't thought about it that way, but maybe the idea that like at the beginning he's having all of these memories and all these thoughts is just like an illustration of the fact that he's more of an internal guy, maybe a little bit more reflective because he has the time and space to be that way. And then one of the lessons that he learns from being stranded is that like sometimes you have to deal with what's outside of you and like actually handle things. It did strike me that it was pretty obvious that in the beginning we're getting all of these flashbacks and then all of a sudden we're not anymore. And Gary's a pro and he's written 200 books. So I don't think that was by accident, but the way you described it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, okay, another thing. More hopping. I'm sorry. I'm just, we have a lot to talk about. 
Okay. At the very end. Yes. When Gary's talking about how Brian copes with what is essentially a very traumatic 40 something days. Right. Mm -hmm. And he, we have this, obviously he has this horrific vision of the pilot's head, which has been eaten by fish, which he tries to wipe from his memory. And the way Gary addresses all of this, is he says, um, you know, the press made much of Brian and he was interviewed for several networks, but the fur died down within a few months. And then he talks about how when Brian is given copies of these pictures in this tape, looking at them triggers dreams. And here's a here's a quote from the book. They were not nightmares. None of them was frightening, but he would awaken at times with them. Just awaken and sit up and think of the lake, the forest, the fire at night, the night bird singing, the fish jumping. Sit in the dark alone and think of them. And it was not bad and would never be bad for him. That was really interesting to me because I feel like to some degree, I don't see that often books for younger people who maybe, and maybe I'm just not well read enough, that's probably it, but that kind of discuss coping with trauma in that way, almost, I don't want to say playing it down, but framing it as something that would never be bad for him. So thinking about this experience would never be bad for him. That to me was interesting, you know, because I feel like We've read a lot of stories where maybe they're framed very differently, less idyllic, less like Walden Pond, more like dystopian. Like I'm running from this, you know, oppressive government and hiding in these woods. But I feel like I read a lot of books where it's someone like, I woke up from a nightmare, you know, and it was an image of something that had happened to me and I'll never be able to get over it. And it's going to keep coming back to me and keep shocking me, keep terrorizing me. I don't know. I found that interesting. I don't know if it's reflective of... Gary as an author of a, from a certain generation where like he's the same generation as my dad. And I know that the way some men like him and like my dad cope is sort of by, I want to say compartmentalizing, but kind of just deciding this is not something that's going to bother me and I'm going to set it aside and it'll never be bad for me. I think that's part of it. I do think that men of a certain generation my dad also is like very good at sort of being like, okay, that was bad, but it's over, you know, and that's sort of even growing up, that was the way he handled a lot of things that my sisters and I were dealing with. Like if we had a bad day, like he would sort of guide us through it. And then the next day he'd be like, okay, great. It's done. It's over. I think that that has helped me in a lot of ways as I've gotten older, because I've sort of learned to tell the difference between situations where I need to do that and situations yep. that maybe require a little bit more attention. And I think that there's a shift happening between men of that generation, if you want to call them that, and this yep. new generation that like is understanding the importance of maybe examining things a little bit further. And so right. I find like I am figuring out how to straddle the line between being a Gary slash my dad and being able to say like, this is a thing that I should probably just stop analyzing and put in the past and be done with. Or like, this is a thing that maybe I can sit with for a little bit longer and like, it's okay to be upset about it. So I do think that that's part of it. I also think that one thing that I really liked in Brian's character was he does seem to have a really healthy sense of perspective. And I think that he spends a lot of time throughout the book kind of like measuring the shittiness of his situation relative to like other things that could be going on and like he does a lot of being like okay like I don't have all of these resources but I'm looking around and like I do have my windbreaker and I do have this hatchet that my mom gave me and I do have shoelaces and he is like okay great there was like this tornado that was terrible but now I can see the plane and maybe there's going to be a survival pack in there so I do think that that's something that 
he seems to be really good at. And so I also think that the fact that he's able to sort of like set the trauma of it aside, while I do think that objectively he could probably use some therapy to work through it, I think that it sort of speaks to his ability to be like, okay, that was really bad. But I came through it. I'm stronger in a lot of ways. I'm back home with my parents and I don't want to dwell on it. So I think it's, it's maybe partially the author, but it seems to ring true to the character for me also. Yeah, no, and you're right. I think I really loved his grit throughout and his emphasis on reframing things, which kind of seemed at the beginning to be taken from the advice of a teacher he'd had. Um, I loved how that was kind of floated out there. You know, I was just kind of mulling over whether that would have been addressed the same way in this book now, you know, by another author, just as an end note. More and more I'm seeing in books the introduction of a counselor or even just like somebody at school, like a guidance counselor, or maybe he's going to talk to that same teacher about what happened. Like you, I really appreciated that there were these like little nods to his teachers. Like it wasn't just that he was doing all of this outdoor experiential learning. Like there were a few teachers that he mentions. I think his biology teacher came up, his English teacher. I'm sure teachers and librarians liked that because it's a nod to the fact that like, we know that the things that you're learning at school are eventually going to pay off. But I do think that maybe in a book written even a few years after this book was written, yeah, maybe there would have been a conversation with like another trusted adult as part of the epilogue instead of this it does kind of wrap itself up in a neat little bow. Even the fact that he decides not to tell his dad about the affair, which I thought was interesting. And I love your thoughts on that. Like what what part of maybe the experience that he had being stranded informed that decision? Because I was surprised that he didn't share that. Okay. I think just spitballing here, but I think it's for me tied into this idea of this shift in his mentality and that he realized that he's just one piece in a much greater, grander, beautiful, terrifying system. And that sometimes it doesn't need to be all about you and how you're coping with a piece of information. And it can be more about just letting the system continue to work as it has, which I think is very interesting because right now there's this emphasis on well, I have to be honest and I have to tell people what I know. I have to, but when we really think about it, they're divorced. That's not changing, right? And at the end of the book, we know they're not getting back together. Who would be helped by that information? Like, would his father actually feel better knowing that? Would his, and we have no information, we have no way of knowing this. We have to hope that like Brian with his new perspective understands this. Would his mother be in a better, be in better shape and this new relationship of hers, because at the end we're told that she is with the man that she was, you know, having an affair with, be pitched into kind of this like guilty murk because more people would know just when it started and how it started. And she would feel deeply irresponsible as a mother knowing her child had witnessed this. I don't know. I almost felt like 100% it's not Brian's burden to shoulder. But I thought it was interesting that maybe he's not he's not even viewing it as the burden that it was at the beginning of the book because of his mentality shift at the end. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think the other thing is that at the beginning of the book, when he was like leaving his mom to go see his dad, he was still very much like sorting through his feelings about like who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Right. And I think that any kid that's been through a divorce or 
a separation or even just has been like in a household where the parents fight a lot like you sort of can't fight the temptation right. to weigh like the right versus wrong within your family and I think that he was feeling some allegiance to his dad because he felt like his dad was the one who had been wronged and he had this sense that like he was going in the plane to like spend time with his dad who had to be the one to leave home and go you know work alone far away like he was definitely sort of taking a little bit of pity on his dad and felt like his dad was the victim in the situation and so I think he was feeling a lot of like sympathy for him and the secret was playing into that a bit but I think by the time he gets to the end of the book I think he's also just like happy to see his parents and so maybe his urge to figure out who's the good guy versus who's the bad guy feels less important because yes the fact that his mom chose to cheat on his dad played into the decision to have a divorce but it was also probably a symptom of like other things that were going on in their marriage and so maybe Brian's like you know this probably would have happened anyway and to your point like it's not going to change maybe it doesn't really make a difference who was right and who was wrong and maybe I should just love them both because I could have never seen either of them again yeah and you know what I love that explanation and I also love that that is not kind of forced down our throats as readers as the explanation. I almost like that he just left it kind of open and he was like, here's what happened. Take from it what you will. Can I put you on the spot with two questions? Yeah. So you briefly mentioned, or maybe I was just like observing your facial expression, that you liked it less than you liked it when you were younger. Is that because it was less interior than you thought it was or than you remember it being? Or were there other reasons? I'm so curious. I don't think I remember it being less interior. I think I've just become a reader who appreciates the interior and the relationships more. Yeah, I think my tastes have evolved. And I think that I don't read a lot of sort of straight action adventure thriller books and it's for this reason because I don't always find that there's the interior character development I also think that there was probably a novelty to this as a kid because I hadn't read another book like it before and I think there was probably an appeal of reading a book about this wild adventure and also of reading about a boy who was older than I was like I'm sure that was kind of exciting to me at the time so I think I just appreciated different things about it I appreciated the writing and I appreciated just sort of like the appreciation that the book gave me for nature and also just for what Brian was able to accomplish but I just think my tastes have evolved as a reader in a way that like I would have liked to see more of certain things in the story got it okay to that end did you read this book that came out last year called I Am Still Alive. No. I read it a few months ago and I remember really liking it, but it's another kind of like survivalist story that is called like, what is it called? The Revenant. That's kind of weird. Okay. Cheryl Strayed's Wild Meets the Revenant. Okay. I'm, I kind of almost want to reread it now to see, because I do think it was first person. I'd need to look it up. How that read compared, like after reading Hatchet. Um, but anyway, okay. You haven't read it. Second question to put you on the spot. Love it. What makes a classic children's book hold up? Because by now you've read so many and examined so many. Is there any common thread or anything you see? Because we talked about how changes in technology now might undermine the way a reader right now, you know, views Hatchet and and suspension of disbelief. But I'm just curious. I do think the technology has a lot to do with it. The two books that come to mind 
that did not age very well because of technology. The first is Running Out of Time, which we did very recently on the show. So I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with that episode, but we talk a lot about phone booths and landlines and a kid calling a press conference instead of just like tweeting out something. Um, So I think that that book didn't age very well. The other one was I Know What You Did Last Summer. And again, there's a lot of mention of landlines and I actually tried to update that book, but they didn't, they sort of halfway updated it. So there was this mention of like web streams, but they were still using landlines. So that was very confusing and just didn't work. So I think technology has a lot to do with it. I think the less an author can sort of like place a book in a particular time period with specific tools or like technologies or games. I mean, I think the sort of the fewer specific references that are included in a children's book, the better. I think honestly, the more it's about relationships, I think those books hold up really well because I think every kid can relate to like having that parent or having that friend or having that grandparent or mentor or teacher in your life who makes a difference. So I personally feel like those are the books that hold up really well. I mean, you look at something like Little Women and while there's some sort of gender things that don't hold up so well in that book, it's fundamentally a classic because it's about this family and these relationships that I think so many of us can see ourselves reflected in. So that would be my thought. What do you think? No, I was about to say the same. I think when there's that really strong emotional thread, that that's what keeps readers interested in coming back and connecting with a book over the years. But to be honest, I, I've i been reading so much contemporary fiction now that I feel like I haven't been able to go back to something like I did with Hatchet for ages. No, I've just been thinking a lot about like what stands up over time, you know, what kind of um, survives <laughs> as my book comes out. Oh my gosh, this is about to get so melancholy. It does feel fake to me when you feel like a narrative, a contemporary narrative is crafted to exclude technology, but I do understand why authors choose to do that in the hopes that by not including like contemporary vocabulary, contemporary technology, you know, they'll have something that does hold up better. I don't know. I'm talking myself into circles. It's a tough line to walk for sure, because I do think sometimes maybe more with adult fiction, I find that it's weird when there's no mention of technology. I also like, I don't mind it so much when there's a mention of like a cell phone, but when you get into like, and then she tweeted or like, and then I posted on Facebook. It's like, I think that there's sort of a gray area in between where you can acknowledge the existence of these technologies without getting into the processes of them. And maybe that's like a good line to walk. I guess it depends on the book too and and on the author. Yeah. And I wonder how much of it becomes almost like an, like an anthropological document, you know, where someone in 20 years reads it and is like, oh my gosh, so this is how, you know, posting something to Instagram worked back then. Not that anyone would care except maybe me. So the core (laughs) question, and I think I kind of know what you're going to say, but has rereading this book made you love it all the more kind of compared to your experience reading it as a kid or has it ruined it for you or has the book not held up in some way you know the rhythm of gary's writing that feels like a somewhat pathetic answer but the rhythm is really what sold me on it there was something almost meditative about it even though there were constant thrills which sounds so cheesy but I also, as, I, as I've gotten older, as you mentioned before, really have come to appreciate the magic or the wonder of nature 
And I don't think I really cared so much about that as a kid. You know, I grew up in California and I never went outside, which goes to show you like how much I cared about the beautiful weather. But now I really treasure that. And honestly, I, it kind of made me yearn for more time outside in nature, which goes to show you how much time I spend in front of a screen, you know, in like an air conditioned box. But it's probably for those reasons, like that theme of connection to nature, looking outside yourself and um, the rhythm of the writing. I really enjoyed it for those reasons. I did not anticipate enjoying it this much. I thought I was just going to have to breeze through. I'm so sorry, Gary. I know you're not listening. You never know. And I will say until about 30 seconds ago, Sarah was like actually hugging the book to her chest. So (laughs) she really did enjoy it. And I'm so glad that I gave you a reason to come back to it and to fall in love, really to double down on your love for Hatchet. And perfect title because we have this Hatchet that at the beginning... Brian is embarrassed to have received it as a gift from his mother. His mother is like that city mom who says, you know, Brian, take this hatchet. You're going to go like to the wilderness and you're going to use it. And he's like, relax, mother. You know, he even like puts it in his belt just to humor her. And then it ends up saving him so many times. And he almost dies trying to get this hatchet, not for sentimental reasons, because this is Gary's book, but because he needs it to survive. It's a great title. And Sarah is now like doing a full Vanna White with the book. You love it. You love this book. You love Gary and you love his book. I read Brian's Winter now. I think I did read it as a kid. I don't I don't remember how Brian ends up back in the wilderness, but I do think that I liked that. See, the thing is, there was so much urgency with this. Yeah. I don't think him just deciding to go out there again would have the same, you know, pull on me. I agree. So other than Hatchet, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? It doesn't have to be YA. It can be anything that you've been reading and loving lately. I loved Three Women by Lisa Tadeo, which has been talked about a lot recently. And I'm actually reading it for my book club next month, which I'm super excited about. I had pitched it to my book club like for two months, I think, because I was like, guys, I think this is going to be a really good book. I've seen a lot of great reviews, but I've seen a few sort of angry reviews. So I think it's going to be a really good discussion. Have you read it yet? No, I'm excited to. I'll let you know when I do, but I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed it. I think I'm going to like it. I've seen a lot more raves than not. Um, I am also reading The Need by Helen Phillips, which is pretty extraordinary and super interesting. I don't know if you've heard anything about it. It's, it's adult literary fiction, but the premise is that it's this woman who it's like she's a mother and then someone appears in her house who is her and she's also like an archaeologist or no, a paleobotanist. Interesting. And she's Bible in a dig that has the God pronouns are she. It's anyway, I haven't finished it. So I'm clearly garbage at describing what it is. And then I read Gia Tolentino's Trick Mirror. And then I'm reading a middle grade book by J. Casper Kramer called The Story That Cannot Be Told. And it's basically set in, in the final months of the communist regime in Romania when a young girl is sent to live with her estranged grandparents in a remote mountain village. And it weaves in Romanian folklore and all of these things I love. And it's really beautifully written. And it's interesting because it's another book that it's being published as middle grade here, but it's being published as adult 
around the world, like in Germany. Those are great recommendations. I'll include links to all the books that you mentioned in the show notes for this episode. I will also include a link to Hatchet, and I would be remiss not to include a link to your book, which is coming out in just a few weeks when this episode drops, The Tenth Girl. Yes. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. It's so soon. Are you ready? Not remotely. Seriously, not remotely. I just sent people information on my launch, and... I mentioned something about serving Argentine bites and wine. And my friend goes, oh, you're serving Argentine bites. Amazing. What are you serving? And I was like, don't ask me these questions. Oh, I have nothing planned. No, I do. I have things planned. They're great. It's going to be great. I'm so excited for you. I'm so excited to read the book. Listeners, you should go check it out. And Sarah, I'm so glad that you were able to make time to read Hatchet in the lead up to your book launch. And it was so fun talking to you about it. Yes, this was amazing. Thank you for having me. It was such a treat to reread a book that I loved and kind of come to love it even more. So thank you. I hope we get to do this again. Of course. Anytime. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hello SSRpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.